Hello and welcome to episode one of series four of the Engaging Internal Comms podcast. This is the show for employee engagers and internal communicators who like to keep up to date with all that is new in our profession. My name's Craig Smith from The Big Picture People. Well, if you listen to this in real time in January 2023, wish you a very happy new year and uh, best wishes from everyone at the podcast and at The Big Picture People. We have um, some great interviews coming up this year. We've got a few already recorded and a few that we've got scheduled. I'll just give you a quick flavour for some of the topics that we're going to be covering. We're going to be covering how to communicate with remote employees. We've covered that before, but always an, uh, an area of interest. We're going to be looking at the conscious workplace, how we can create create workplaces that are engaging and uh, stimulating and obviously comms plays a huge part in that. We're going to be looking at trust and how trust has an impact on communications in in all sorts of ways, not only communications but also leadership as well. And we're also going to be looking at civility and politeness, something that's uh, absent in many of the communications, certainly uh, externally and then social media. And we're going to be looking at how we can make sure that there we have civility and, in, in, uh, and, and politeness in our communication in particular the ones that uh, go outside of our remit, maybe not the official communication. So some really interesting uh, topics coming up for you. Um, I just wanted to let you know or make you aware, sometimes I'm I'm conscious, I listen to podcasts myself. I know I I tend to listen to them when I'm on the go and I don't always um, take advantage of the the show notes that that are with the the podcast that I listen to. So just wanted to make you aware that there are, that we do, we do produce show notes with all of our podcast episodes going back right to the beginning uh, in 2020 we've always produced show notes and if you go to our website if you if you're listening to this on iTunes or uh, another platform if you go to our website thebigpicturepeople.co.uk and go to our podcast page where you'll see all of our all of our previous episodes listed we do have extensive show notes and we do put links in there not only to the guests and and their own materials and some of them have some fantastic resources uh, for you to look at um, also to their their LinkedIn profiles, so you can go and have a look at them and maybe connect with them yourselves and strike up a, a conversation with them. But also to previous episodes that we've got. So we, what we try and do is make it easy for you, if, if this is a topic that you're interested in, to find a, a, a link back to one of our previous shows where you can you can find out some more content around that that topic area. So do have a look at the show notes. We do put some time into into them um, and, uh, and and make them useful for you. So so um, just to get the most out of out of the podcast experience. Um, so I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to get straight into today's episode, which uh, one of my favourite interviews. But uh, you'll you'll find out more about why that is when once uh, you you've had a listen to it. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. Regardless of what they do, the goal for many organisations is to make sure that their employees and their team members are all aligned and pointing in the same direction towards a common goal. It's often difficult to find any useful parallels within our own industries because it can be a congested market and our competitors aren't always willing to share with us what they're up to and what they're doing. And trying to find another industry where we can learn from can often be a challenge. And sometimes the world of competitive sport is often not a great analogy to use because within sport, there are often clear ways of winning and losing and there is always usually a hierarchy of who is doing the best and who isn't. And that's often more clear for people to see. However, 
I was at a conference recently and I heard someone talking who had a huge amount of experience working within Formula One. Now, full disclosure here, I am a Formula One fan myself. I love Formula One. I've been a fan for well over 40 years now. I've been going to Formula One races, to Grand Prix. Um, And I did wrestle with the fact as to whether this guest's uh, contributions might only be, uh, I might only be satisfying my own self-interest and my own desire for Formula One. However, when I saw him speak at the conference, I realized that actually what he was sharing with us and and the client who we were working with at the conference was not um, a Formula One team as well, uh, were massively relevant to other industries as well, to other sectors. So what we're going to be looking at today are what are some of the lessons that we can learn from a communications, from an engagement, and just from an alignment perspective when it comes to lessons from Formula One, a highly competitive, highly visual, very sexy industry, but how can we use some of those lessons that Formula One deploys week in, week out, successfully year after year, and how the most successful teams deliver consistent results with very large organizations as well. I think sometimes we think Formula One teams are only a handful of people who we see on the TV. They're often many thousands of people who work in a Formula One team. And how do we make sure that that alignment exists between the the people who are working at the track, who we can all see on the TV if we're watching the race, and the people who never get to the track, who are working in the nominally in the back office, but delivering things that without their work, the team couldn't succeed. So we're going to be exploring this in a whole range of issues with someone who is really got lots of experience within the sport, but also knows some of the key players and has seen what makes for success, but also what makes for failure within this very dynamic sport. So I hope you find this interview interesting and useful. My guest today is Mark Gallagher. Mark is has two decades of experience in Formula One. Mark was former marketing and management board director of Jordan Formula One Grand Prix and has also worked with commercial affairs for Red Bull Racing and has also worked for Cosworth Formula One. Mark, I'm going to let you do your own introduction here. Normally I introduce <laughs> my guests, but I, I, I can't do justice to your incredible uh, experiences and CV here. So what have I missed out? And what are the other things that are kind of particularly relevant about what you've done and what you're doing now? Well, thank. First of all, thank you very much, uh, Craig, for having me uh, join you today. Um, you've covered the background in terms of the main points. Jordan Grand Prix was a big part of my career. Fifteen years there, and I spent seven of those years on the management board. And then I joined Red Bull Racing. I think we we'll, might talk about that a little bit during the course of of our conversation. And then I ended up running the Cosworth. Uh, Formula One engine business, which is a very iconic name and engineering company in in Formula One. Um, my original part of my career, sort of initially, the first kind of almost decade of my career, I spent working in the media in Formula One and then kind of jumped the fence from the media into public relations. So I worked in very much communications in the early part of my career. And then more recently, um, I've got my own company, Performance Insights. Um, I go in and speak to multinational companies and national companies, but I must say most, most of my business is international, about what companies can learn from a high-performance environment like Formula One. And that business has um, expanded so that we now work with a lot of Formula One drivers and team principals and engineers and really just enjoy 
sharing insights from the incredible business of Formula One into into the world of commerce, and uh, and that's that's very much me up to date. Fantastic. And, wh- and whereabouts are you in the world? I normally ask my guests where they are. You're in the UK at the moment. Obviously, you uh, do a lot of travelling around. Where are you at the moment, yeah. Mark? So I I live in Chipping Norton in Oxfordshire. Uh, we moved here about a year ago, having downsized from what was the family home. I spend almost half of the year in Australia, where um, we're very fortunate to have a uh, actually, these days, uh, the main family home. My kids live and work in Australia. I run my business during the winter from Australia. And really, I only uh, come back to Europe for what is essentially the Formula One season. So it's been a it's been a very interesting transition into doing that. But it gives me a gives me a foot in two parts of the world, and I very much enjoy the fact that when I'm out in Australia, I work with clients in Asia Pacific and Australia. And when I'm in Europe. I principally work with clients in Europe and North America. It's a perpetual summer for you, then. <laughs> yeah, I think as a as a uh, a very white skinned Irish person, I grew up in <laughs> Belfast. Um, I've somehow become acclimatised to the slightly hotter environments. I think that's due to the, you know, Formula One season kind of follows the summer, and uh, but but most importantly, I met my wife in Adelaide at the Grand Prix thirty years ago. We got married and. Uh, that's the that's the Australian dimension to my life. Fantastic, fantastic. We just I've just celebrated my thirtieth wedding anniversary as well. So congratulations. So, oh well, unto uh, you too. Fantastic. Anyway, I, I I I saw you speaking at a conference, um, uh, and as a massive, you know, I kind of I guess first of all, massive disclosure from myself. I'm a huge F1 fan, so I'm kind of biased and really interested in what you were talking about. But I think just gen- for me, Jen, it had a lots of whether you lo- love F1, whether you you've never watched F1 in your life, whether you avoid it like the plague, whatever. I think it, huge transferable lessons from the stuff you were talking about, and obviously that's why you were what, what you were talking about at the conference and. The first one of the first stories you talked about, which I thought that would be, and the way it was where I kind of thought I'm, I must kind of catch you afterwards and see if I can get you to come on my podcast, was you were talking about, um, you know, the, the challenges of, of 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 leading a Formula One team, which is clearly a highly competitive, um, you, you know, in some respects, I always think I find sporting analogies with with business of you know the, the the clarity of what what defines winning and what defines not winning in business is sometimes not as clear as it is in, in, in something like Formula One. But I still think there's huge parallels. One of the things you were talking about, which was when you bring people into a Formula One team, into a successful Formula One team, clearly they're being brought in for, for their technical abilities as well. And obviously they've been through a recruitment process, which, which is, shows they've got the right behaviours and attitudes as well. But I'm, I'm fascinated by what are the processes that a, a team would go through. And I know you, you've kind of got, probably got some practical experience of this, but what are some of the things that, that we need to communicate to someone when they come into something like a high-performing team like a Formula mm. One team? Because they've got a land running. There's no, there's no scope for them to sort of, you know, have have a kind of bad few weeks or a, a rough couple of months getting getting their feet under the table. They've got a land running. So, what what are some of the things that that would a Formula One team would do in that sort of situation, Mark? Well, you've already covered actually a really important point, which is that when we recruit people into Formula One, it's so important to get that recruitment right, and therefore it's, of course, the academic qualifications and experience is important, and particularly if it is for a technical. Uh, role and the majority of roles in Formula One teams are technical, but beyond that, then what we're looking for is a, is already a, a personality, a mindset, a willingness to work in a team environment, um, an understanding that 
they're joining an organization which, in the case of a competitive Formula One team, might have 1,000 full-time employees working on Formula One, maybe 1,500 employees within the business working on other things as well, as the case as is the case with Red Bull Racing and Mercedes-Benz. So we're recruiting people who already have the right mindset. And then when we induct them into the business, it's about really introducing them to, first of all, the fundamentals around the sport of Formula One in terms of compliance, all the regulatory framework. So obviously, if you're working in a technical role, mm. uh, maybe in research and development or design, um, you're talking about the technical regulations. If you're working in the race team, you might be talking about the sporting regulations, which we have to adhere to. And and then, of course, we also now have a set of financial regulations. So every Formula One team has a budget cap, which they have to work to. So you're bringing people in and get, laying the groundwork of, so here are the areas where we need to be careful and make sure we work within those rules and regulations and are fully compliant. And of course, that's in many ways, it's not rocket science, but it's important that everyone understands that we are working in a regulated environment and therefore mm. there are certain do's and don'ts. Then you move into the culture of the team. And the thing that I find really fascinating, Craig, is that, I mean, I've only worked in two Formula One teams and there is a reason for that, which is I made a decision myself that I wouldn't become one of those people in the industry who, you know, flits from one team to another every few yeah. years. I, did, I, I spent 15 years at Jordan I then went to Red Bull Racing, and when I joined Red Bull, I decided this will be my second and my last Formula One team because I will then move on and do something else. And mm. when, But the thing that fascinates me is each team has a different culture. You know, the culture of Red Bull is quite distinct in terms of the brand they represent and the values that they represent. Uh, it's very different from Ferrari. So Ferrari would have, you know, it's a team with 73 years heritage, huge history. You know, that's a really big part of their brand, their makeup, their pride. So you're introducing, so you're inducting people into, you know, what are we about as an organization? Uh, what do we represent? What are our values? What are the behaviors that we want within our business? So that's a really important part of mm making that person firmly part of the team. And, of course, the interesting thing is that when we employ young people, so apprentices or university graduates, they're coming in fresh. They, they're they not bringing any baggage from the rest of their career with them, whereas when we're yeah. employing people with more experience, they might come with some slightly more fixed ideas. And so one of it's really important at the beginning to say, here are the do's and don'ts for us as a business. This is what we will do. This is what we won't do. This is our culture. This is what we stand for. And then you move on to the granular detail of what we as a business have as an ambition. So mm. here are our ambitions and our goals as a business. Here, are, Here's what we aspire to achieve. And then saying to individuals, and this is where you fit in. You know, this. So you're part of the team that's trying to achieve uh, these set of goals. So you're going through... As I say, you're starting with the practicalities of, of our industry and the compliance and all of that good stuff. You're moving through into what is specific and unique about your organization, the values and behaviors that you have, and then into that granular detail of where do you fit in, how are you going to help us to contribute, or how are you going to contribute to our goals as a business, and making sure that right from the get-go, those people understand the role that they have to play, and therefore the opportunity they have to contribute uh, to the organization. Yeah. 
You talk there about values and, and and obviously two very different teams there. And then again, even for someone who doesn't know Formula One, they probably recognise Ferrari, you know, as you said, 70 odd years of heritage, the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the grandees of the sport as it were. And then you've got the kind of young upstart, a very successful team like Red Bull. W- looking at the values and, and I guess winning is, 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 a, is, a, is, or, the realistic ambitions to win anyway with uh, is a, is a kind of a recurring theme in the sport but would would if we would and i guess i kind of know what the answer is going to be on this i think but to work in a team like red bull and to work in a team i know you've not worked in ferrari but you've worked in you know other teams um and you're familiar with other teams what how would the values differ in those two different organizations as, as to how those two teams operate and how they deliver success versus you know kind of superficially they're doing the same thing but they're doing it through a very different strategy i guess yes uh, really interestingly at red bull formula one uh from the start when the team was created in november 2004 the values of the formula one team very much reflected the value of red bull values of red bull as a company it was about being a very vital energetic literally an energetic business Mm. energy was at the center of it so it was all about driving a sense of urgency, of energy, of uh, of being innovative. If you think about Red Bull as an energy drink, they, well, first of all, they created the energy drinks market. They challenged the giants like Pepsi-Cola and Schweppes and Coca-Cola in the soft drinks uh, market. So they, they see themselves as challengers. And so mm. there's a, there are a lot of values around that. It's about questioning established ways of doing things. It's about innovating. It's being not afraid to upset the establishment it's hmm. it's about yeah. being not fearing failure so actually being prepared to take risks um really interesting to hear dietrich madishitz the founder of red bull actually outline the values of red bull when on the the week that he took over the team i remember him very well uh, mm. outlining the values and saying and this is how we're going to do formula one we're going to be innovative we're going to be different we're going to challenge the establishment you know, really interesting. And of course, that's quite an exciting set of values to then think about how can I employ, deploy that in my day job. Then if you move to a team like Ferrari, uh, you're, you're right, I haven't worked at Ferrari, but I've got good friends who've worked there. And they they say to me, when you go to work for Ferrari, you know, you immediately gain a sense of history and heritage and the value of this classic Italian, you know, engineering and technology company but mm. wrapped in in beautiful italian design so not only are we going to create amazing engineering but it's going to be beautiful engineering we're going to play to our heritage as as ferrari so that whole tradition and heritage of what we do and that's all that becomes part of the fabric of that business that you're working within and then interestingly you know ferrari pride themselves on very high quality engineering it's about performance it's about speed it's about you know, thriving in this competitive environment. And, of course, Ferrari see themselves very much as the iconic team of Formula One. And at at the risk of going into areas of, of, you know, (laughs) criticism early on in our conversation, when I then ask friends who work at Ferrari about, okay, so you've got all that good stuff, so where, where else does that take you? They will then say, "Well, actually, one of the one of the problems when you go to work at Ferrari after a while is you begin to sense that maybe there's a degree of hubris within the mm. business. There's a, a slight, a slight. I mean, arrogance might be too strong a word, but there's a they co- almost feel that they're exceptional, 
when in fact the reality is that all of the teams in Formula One are in some way exceptional because they're all at the top of the motorsport pyramid. And you have to be very careful in Formula One never to rest on your laurels, never to Mm. rest on your past glories. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, teams like Red Bull and Mercedes are very good at at avoiding. So they don't say, oh, well, we've we've been a very successful team, therefore we can relax. They, They keep a sense of urgency and relentless curiosity into how do we stay at number one. And I think that some of these points I'm making are kind of clues as to perhaps why Ferrari, for example, has not won the Formula One championship now for a decade and a half, which seems extraordinary for a team which is so legendary and Mm. unquestionably has so much going for it. So I think the values and the values that you find when you step inside these teams do differ. Not all of their attributes are necessarily positive. Um, yeah. And you and I, you and I met at Williams, um, you know, when yeah. we met at a conference. And you know, you and I both know Williams was a once great team, sixteen times world champions, and they fell off that perch and they had a period of of decline. So again, one of the things that's interesting is that you know what happens to organisations over time. How do they ebb and flow in terms of performance, and and therefore uh, for teams that are competitive in Formula One, the big question becomes not how do we win, but how do we sustain success over a yeah. long period of time? And that's much more interesting to, to look at. Yeah. And, and the, you, you mentioned it there. And, and, and again, I think it's, it's worth, worth telling this story because I think it has a huge um, impact. You know, it has a huge relevance to, to, to the audience that we're, we're, we're speaking to, which is the story of when Red Bull was the inception of Red Bull and when it took over what was the Jaguar team, which at the time mm. wasn't particularly a successful team or and it had a lot of money thrown at it and then had not really achieved anything. And and yet, and, and I think for me, why this is so interesting is, you know, we kind of, you hear people sort of, you know, culture culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, I think it's a classic <laughs> example of, of how, you know, a, a, a cultural change in, in, in an organization that is essentially still trying to do the same thing was a was a huge influence on on that team becoming one of the most successful teams in recent times so you just tell us a little bit about that story because it's it's a fantastic story i think the jaguar formula 1 team had existed for 5 seasons and had never won a grand prix and that team in itself had grown out of jackie stewart's formula 1 team which had actually managed to uh, to win a race so the Jaguar period was one of great disappointment for Jaguar, for a Ford Motor Company who owned the company. And they decided to close the company or sell it, which was not good news for the 600 staff in Milton Keynes. And honestly, I don't believe they felt they would find a buyer. Um, and then Red Bull turned up. And Dietrich Mateschitz, the founder of what we would know as Red Bull, even though Red Bull initially was a, a company based in Thailand. It was Dietrich Mateschitz who had the vision to take Red Bull globally as a business. And Dietrich came to the factory that first week after acquiring the team and addressed all of the staff. And in a very short 30-minute presentation, outlined his vision for the business and what would be different. And I often mention this because I wish I'd recorded it. He had <laughs> such vision he stood in front of the staff and said, you know, good morning, you know, work for Red Bull. And you can imagine for a group of 600 people who've been working for such an iconic car company such as Jaguar, 
to then think, oh, we now work for uh, you know energy drinks business. What does this guy <laughs> know about winning? And then Dietrich said, well, and my, my ambition is to win the world championship in Formula One within five years. And I think people were almost incredulous. At, you know, does he really have that ambition? How are we possibly going to achieve that when we haven't even won a race? But he challenged everyone. He said, you know, I want you to go away and think about, you know, what's been the what's been the impediment to success? What has blocked you? Because my job as leader is to create a framework within which you can excel, you, where you can start to win. Something has been stopping you, and it's not it's not you and yourselves. You're all talented people. We have a great factory. We have nice facilities. Of course, you've had a good budget. I will make sure you have the right budget going forward. So he's very much already showing that he understood that this was a people business and mm-hmm. that it's people who are going to lead to success. And the thing that I found really fascinating about that was that within five years, second part of 2009, Red Bull began to dominate Formula One. And then in the four seasons that followed, they won both the Drivers and Teams Championship, four mm. consecutive seasons. And of course, you and I know they've also won both the championships this year in 2022. So mm. what's happening here? Well, what's happened is a change of leadership style, a change of culture, uh, a huge empowering of the workforce, a move away from, if I may say, what was the Ford Jaguar culture, which was was very hierarchical and quite command and control, if I may put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas the Red Bull culture is very different. Um, At the risk of name dropping, on Monday morning this week, I had a meeting with Christian Horner, who's the team principal and chief executive of, of Red Bull Racing in the factory. And, you know, we it's a 45 minutes meeting. We were just talking about a, a couple of opportunities that, that we want to work on. And I was reflecting on the fact, you know, Christian is now running that business. He's been running that business now since the uh, early part of 2005. He's been there 17 years. And he has created a structure and a framework that's incredibly flat where people are really held accountable but empowered. So you've got accountability, but also you're given responsibility. They load up their staff with opportunity to thrive. And his right-hand man, Adrian Newey, she's the chief technical officer of Red Bull Racing. You know, Adrian is known in Formula One, Craig, uh, as you and I know, he's he's known as a design genius. Yeah. Actually, I think he's a leadership genius because what, what Adrian does is he creates a group of several hundred design engineers, and then gives them effectively a sense of direction and then uh, then enables them to get on with the job of creating the best Formula One cars in the world. So he's an enabler. Uh, he is an empowerer of, of talent. And when you read his book, uh, which he published a few years ago called How to Build a Car, it's, I think that's his sense of humor, that title of the book. Uh, <laughs> but you know, the most successful design designer in Formula One history. But when you read his book, you're really struck by the fact that pretty well every story he tells about his successes and his you know, design breakthroughs, his innovations, actually he attributes those to other people. And he will say, actually, yes, I had the vision for what we wanted to do that year, but it was such and such an engineer who came up with the bright idea to do this certain thing, or it was this other engineer who came into my office one day and said, why don't we try this? And, and so... Adrian absolutely understands that although he's a technical genius, actually Formula One's all about people and teamwork and, and getting the best out of people. 
Amazing. Uh, it amazes me, uh, Christy, I know Christian Horner, and again, without getting too, too sort of geeking out on Formula One, uh, and I know depending on which side of the fence you sit on and who you support, Christian can divide opinion, but uh, it, it amazes me how he has kept that level of energy and success for 17 years and also endured a period of you know, fairly dismal performance during the beginning of the hybrid era and then managed to turn it around and, and, and turn it back into a, a winning team again. I think it's incredible. I think, you know, and I think for, for regardless of what you think of him, I think that endurance and, and energy and um, staying power is incredible. Uh, I think it's, um, it's, you don't often see that in any organisation, A, that loyalty and B, that, that continued success. So uh, I don't know yeah, whether you, 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that, Craig, because, there has only been one season since two thousand and nine that Red Bull haven't won a race. So they've, they've True. been race they've been race winners every year apart from mm. one. And failure for Red Bull Racing now look has looked like second or third in the championship. Um, mm. yeah, it's never it's been relative. Seven, it's never been seventh in the championship like mm. like Jaguar was. So mm. they have been a consistent performer over that time. And the meeting I had with Christian on Monday, there was a uh, had a, a a guy with me who I was introducing to Christian. And when we left the meeting, the guy turned to me and he said, he'd never met Christian before. And he turned to me and he said, wow, that guy exudes determination. Mm. And I thought that was a really good summary. Christian as a leader is so enthusiastic about his job, his team, mm. what he does. He's passionate about it. Um, and honestly, when people, you know, when, when anyone says to me, you know, particularly at the moment that, within Formula One, you know, are you a Mercedes fan or are you a Red Bull <laughs> fan or are you a Total Wolf fan or are you a Christian Horner fan? I'm fortunate to have met both and to have worked with both teams through my consulting business. And actually, there's far more in common than separate them. Yeah, and it yeah. is the, fo- the focus and determination that they both have is just incredibly, and it's infectious. And one of the things which I feel really strongly about is that when – when they bring people in to work for Mercedes or they bring people in to work for Red Bull Racing, those leadership teams infect people with their enthusiasm and with mm. their competitive instinct. And it is infectious. You you suddenly realize you're surrounded by a group of people who eat, live, and breathe how to be the best in the business of what they do. And that's incredibly energizing. So mm. I think, you know, mm. Toto and Christian, yes, they, you know, incredibly driven individuals, but actually – they are that way because they're, in fact, driving a group of 1,500 people to be the best in the world at what is an incredibly complex sport. Mm, definitely. Right. I've got, I've got one kind of two related questions that, that I think we can tie together just to f- finish off, Mark. One, one when, when I knew this any kind of anyway, just from my kind of lay person's observation of Formula One over the years, but, but you reiterated it at the com- reiterated this at the conference you spoke at, which is that, you know, Formula One is essentially, you think of it as an iceberg. There's, there's all the stuff that we see on the TV at the weekend with the team and the, you know, the pit stops and the drivers and all of the kind of th- things that are going on in the scenes. But clearly, there's this huge below the water that the people that never get the limelight, but who are doing this amazing work uh, to, to 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 make the t- the teams be able to do what they do on the track. And I know I think people who don't know Formula One probably don't perceive how many people there are in a Formula One team. You mentioned 600 or so at, at Williams, etc., and a thousand or so at, at Red Bull. But so there's two aspects to that that I'd just like to sort of finish off with you. One is 
uh, how how does a, a Formula One team, how do Formula One teams keep that, the people who aren't in the limelight all the time, the people who just do, you know, the kind of the old NASA story of putting a man on the moon by keeping the floor, fleet, floor clean at Houston or whatever. How do they, how do they keep those people, la- female, la- ladies and gentlemen, sort of engaged with this? And then the other thing is, the, other, the flip side of that is, is, I know you spoke about this at the conference, is that sometimes... We, if you're watching Formula One, you hear the driver sort of being told what the strategy is on, and them not necessarily always agreeing with it, but then having to kind of trust that actually I can't see the big picture. I can only see, you know, the the, the, the tarmac in front of me traveling towards me at 200 miles an hour. I can't see what's going on in the rest of the field, but I also can't know, know what the weather's going to do or what other teams' strategies are at the moment. So kind of those two different ends of the pyramid, yeah. I guess, the, the people under the water and the people right at the front end. How do, how do teams get that right? And and particularly the successful teams like Red Bull, who, you, who you've obviously got strong relationships with. Well, this is such an interesting topic because whenever I go to speak for companies around the world, one of the things that I'm very struck by is that in pretty well any business, you have the front-facing part. So it might be the salespeople who are out in the field meeting the customers, and in some cases, whining and dining the customers, mm-hmm. maybe traveling, you know, senior leaders traveling on, on, on company business. So you have the front end of the business, which can, which can look like the sexy part. And mm. then very often those companies will say to me, and then, then we have our back office. And I'll say, so what do your back office do? And they'll say, well, you know, they design and produce our products and they market them and they do finance and HR and supply chain management and procurement. And it's the same in Formula mm-hmm. One. So we have yeah. this racing team out at a racetrack somewhere in the world, but that is less than 10% of our employees. 90% of our colleagues work in a factory. And let's be clear, it's not that glamorous. You know, Red Bull Racing's in Milton Keynes. Um, you know, Mercedes-Benz is in Brackley. Um Williams is in Grove and Oxfordshire. McLaren is in a you know industrial park in Surrey. Um, so actually, we need one hundred percent of our people to be as committed as the driver in the car, as the mechanic in the pit lane, as the hospitality host at the race. Um, so one of the roles that leaders have in Formula One is to make sure that we have co- real cohesion, real team alignment. That everyone, irrespective of their role and irrespective of their geographical location, understands that they each and every one of them play a critical part in the team. And that's not a cliche because mm. I, if there ever was a time when Formula One teams could have, I think it was Jack Welch, the former GE chief executive, mm. who said, you know, at any one time, 10% of your employees are just cruising. Well, we can't afford to have 1% of our employees cruising. If if we have that happening, then we've employed the wrong people. So we need everyone mm. absolutely contributing. So one of the ways that, I mean, there are a number of things that we do. First of all, very regular internal communications, consistent communications across the business, which literally join everyone together, making sure we have a very closely networked organization so that whether you're sitting in an office in Brackley or whether you're sitting trackside in Monte Carlo, you're actually all joined by the way the com- company is communicating consistently with you, and mm. you understand uh, that you are one link in a very long chain. Uh, secondly, the practical things that we can do in terms of town hall meetings. Um, I think I mentioned in the conference at Williams how you know to see Lewis Hamilton stand up in front of the entire workforce at Brackley uh, 
at a weekly town hall meeting and talk about the good things that are happening in the business and the bad things that are happening, you know, bad things being, you know, if they've had a technical problem or something. Mm. And that was something that Michael Schumacher was extremely good at doing at Ferrari. You know, Michael really helped the leadership team there to drive a cohesive one team culture because of the weekly town hall meetings, which essentially means everyone in the business is being shown we it's one team, one goal, one way of working together, you know, one yeah. shared ambition, all of those good things. So you're driving that that message home. And of course, I mean, I mentioned at a conference recently to a client, you know, when Lewis Hamilton or uh, you know, Michael Schumacher or uh, Max Verstappen visits a Formula One team factory each week, they will actually walk around all the departments and meet you know, meet the colleagues who work in all of the different functions and roles. Now, that's incredibly exciting. The company that I was telling this to, someone in the audience said, oh, well, we don't have a Formula One driver to go around mm. and visit all our departments, so how do we do it? And I said, but it's that's about visible leadership. I mean, yeah. it doesn't, it's, it's a, what's to stop you as a leader going around and visiting the departments that you're responsible for each week, physically going and visit them? And, of course, in these days of hybrid working, that may mean also having some online meetings where you're literally just saying hi to people. Thanks for your good work this week. This, this is where we're at. This is what's happening in the business. So about driving and reinforcing the cohesion in the team, making sure everyone is glued together with where we are at. And that, and that it, it's really important that no one person in the business thinks that they're more important than other people. And equally, there's no one in the business who feels that they're less important than anyone else. So it's all about driving that cohesion. And I think that the use of modern you know, fully connected communication is a fabulous opportunity for companies to drive cohesion and alignment across the team. But then even yeah. more so, and I think on this far side of COVID, the fact that we now cherish face-to-face meetings, face-to-face town hall meetings, far more than ever before, because we now yeah. appreciate appreciate that opportunity. So that's the company-wide approach. Uh, part of one of the really key strategies in all of that is to make sure we run recognition programs where any individual from across the business can be given recognition by the whole team for their contribution mm. and you know teams in formula 1 do that by nominating members of staff to represent the team on the podium when they win a race so yeah over the years i've seen that i mean that's had such a powerful impact i've spoken to couple of people at Mercedes-Benz who've been chosen to represent the team on the podium standing beside Lewis Hamilton. And they've said to me, it has literally changed their life. You know, it's been a moment that they will never forget. They know the company respects and, and recognizes their contribution. It also means that their colleagues get to see, actually, I work in a company that really recognizes individual contribution. And that's a really important message to, to mm. share. In answer to your second part of your question, the driver at the racetrack, again, I think the analogy I would use is the driver is is like the salesperson. They're, the Formula One driver's job is to clinch the deal mm. uh, by winning the race. But to clinch the deal by winning the race, the driver at the racetrack is entirely reliant on a team of people both at the racetrack and remotely from the factory mm. to drive race strategy. And the support team do, exactly to your point, they do see the big picture. They have all of the data about what the competition are doing. They can see the big picture of what's happening in the race. They have far greater levels of visibility over what's happening than the driver does. And to be honest, a Lewis Hamilton or a Max Verstappen wins races in Formula One today because a large group of people come up with the 
optimal strategy and then tell them this is what you need to do in order to win the race. And for me, that is um, a story within Formula One that's perhaps less understood even by fans who follow the sport is a degree mm-hmm. to which the driver is only one you know, part of the decision-making process. And actually, to win in Formula One today, you're incredibly reliant on that support team around you. And in, and, a, and just one final point on this. In the case of mm. Max Verstappen, world champion, you know, his principal strategist is Hannah Schmitz. Um, she doesn't go to all the races. She's actually running race strategy for Milton Keynes very often. So here we have a, a sport which, in terms of gender diversity, has improved beyond all recognition. And actually, yes, Max Verstappen may be world champion, but Hannah Schmitz has made that possible. And mm-hmm. equally at Mercedes-Benz, Lewis Hamilton has a strategist called Rosie Tate who works in Brackley. And so, again, it's it's the Rosies and the Hannahs of this world who are driving the strategies, which then a Lewis Hamilton or a Max Verstappen simply depo- deploys and, and goes on to win the world championship. So Formula mm-hmm. One's all about teamwork and technology and harmony and people working together and collaborating to create winning outcomes. Yeah. And I think that's a, a superb lesson for any organization, isn't it? I think, and, that, and I think everything you've said there, hopefully for the audience, uh, we will recognize that there's some huge transferable learnings in, in, in what you've been talking about there. Mark, before I say goodbye to you, I just want to give you the ben- benefit, the opportunity just to tell us a little bit about more about your own work at the moment. So you said you, you've had your own business for, I think, 10 years now. Um, I know before we started recording, you said you, you know, you're really busy at the minute. Things are really picking mm. up. Just, 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 just tell us a little bit more about this. Kind of work that you do and obviously you're working in formula one but you I, yeah. I know from my experience you work with other companies as well uh, to, to impart some of that knowledge and wisdom to, to, to other industries and other sectors just tell us a little bit about what you're up to mark and i'll put some links into the show notes to help people find you if, if what you do is relevant to them as well okay well within formula one it'll come as no surprise that uh, i work with a number of the technology companies and commercial partners because that's my background is is commercial so for example oracle who sponsor red bull mm. racing have been a, a big client this year we've been on lots of events with them i've spoken at those events worked with max verstappen worked with christian horner uh, then similarly at mercedes-benz you know we've got a couple of clients there who bring us in to do all kinds of events for them and then outside of formula one my goodness you know we have somehow managed to assemble a group of about 20 to 24 individuals, all of whom have got great insights to share from Formula One, be that a Formula One driver. So if you take a current driver like Valtteri Bottas, he drives for Alfa Romeo, used to be teammate to Lewis Hamilton. We bring Valtteri into companies and he talks about what what it takes to win in Formula One. He also talks about, you know, the challenge of being a teammate to a seven times world champion like Lewis Hamilton and he gives the driver's eye view of what it takes to win and he's incredibly good at talking about the degree of reliance that he has on the team and the way in which the teamwork is everything and also the the data-driven side of Formula One the way in which he as a driver knows that our you know digital environment gives us the tools to help us to to win and to thrive as teams so that's you know he's just one example so we have about 20 24 people that we work with um, from drivers to engineers to team principals to um, some of the broadcasters, Martin Brundle, uh, voice yeah. of Formula One on Sky Sports. Martin and I have enjoyed a very good working relationship for a number of years. He, in fact, he drove for Jordan Grand Prix when I was in the management board there. And um, and Martin is just terrific to bring into corporate events to talk about 
you know, granular insights from Formula One. He was a driver for 10 years. He was teammate to Michael Schumacher. He was um, an arch rival in Formula Three to Ayrton Senna. Um, and then he took over from Murray Walker, a name that many people would remember. Yeah. Uh, he took over from Murray Walker as the, the lead commentator on the sport uh, here in the in the UK. And Martin is just a fabulous communicator. And so he can really... He can take any question about any facet of Formula One and give you a terrific insight to it. Yeah. So this is what we're doing. So we're bringing in people of that caliber into organizations in the UK, across Europe, internationally. And I enjoy it very much because essentially what we're doing is we're talking about the sport that we love and that we've spent our careers dedicated to and hopefully give people, whether, whether they are F1 fans or not, and most of my audiences are not Formula One fans, but my goodness, they once, once you open the lid on it and start talking about topics which resonate for any business, um, they, you know, the ears sing prick up and people are fascinated. So something I completely love doing. Fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, look, Mark, uh, any links you want me to put into the show notes? I can put some links into uh, your your own website, your own business yeah. website. I'll put in a link yeah. into your own LinkedIn profile because obviously, uh, as I said, I know it's only part of what you do, but the, the, the public speaking aspect of your business and not just yourself, but the, the, the people you've just spoken about there is a, is a huge... Um, uh, you know, it's a huge market, and and definitely something that I'm sure people listening to this will be looking for looking for a uh, a keynote speaker or someone who can inspire and rally their troops. I think is a fantastic. Uh, thank you uh, very choice. much. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. That's well, great. look, thank you, look, thank you, Mark, Craig. I know you've got. To, I know you've got a dash. Thank you so much. It's been brilliant speaking to you, and I know we've uh, we've uh, been to and fro with the times on this, but really good to actually have this conversation with you, Mark. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, look forward to speaking to you in the near future. Thank you so much, Craig. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Engaging Internal Comms podcast. If you've got any ideas for episodes you'd like us to cover in future, you can email us at info at thebigpicturepeople.co.uk or you can use the feedback form at engagingic.com. If you're not already subscribed to the show via your podcast platform, please do so. And if you could leave a review for us, that would be absolutely fantastic. We have links to other episodes at engagingic.com. All of our previous episodes are available there. And if you're interested in our visual communication services, our big pictures, our learning maps, our explainer videos, and also our live graphic recording, please get in touch with us again at info at thebigpicturepeople.co.uk. Thank you.